Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 311. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a Halloween special. Well, we've got two stories set on October the 31st. How cool is that? Give you a heads up what's coming today's show. First up, I'm going to give you a little kind of... I, I teased last week with that telephone conversation, that telephone recorded message of what Sofa Notes is all about. I'm going to give you a little heads up what's happening with Sofa Notes. And then actually over the weeks, I'll kind of fill you in with more details. So that's coming up first. Then we have a fact article, which is Cheapskates by our very own assistant editor, Mr. Adam Piot. <laughs> Adam still haven't got a clue. Then the first piece of fiction is The Visited by Anir Lear. Then we have another fact article. It is, as you know, the end of the month, and it's Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Then we've got another piece of fiction by our very own Dennis M. Lane. Great name as well for his story, Aquarians on the White House Lawn. How cool is that? That is all coming up on Starship Sofa's 311. I do hope you will join us. So jumping straight in then, if you remember, yes, last week. Oh, before we get that, there has been a, I just want to apologise as well, there's been a few little issues with the feed and with the site. The site's been slow as, slow as anything over the last kind of week or so. And Josh has been kind of busily working on it there, and he's actually doing it there now. We're finding it. She's a big girl. <laughs> there's no two ways around it. The Starship's over is a big girl. She, she's a huge girl. Gigs of gigs and gigs of content. And what we're having to do is it's just a kind of cash or whatever it is, something like that. Josh was saying all these kind of words, and just, yeah, all right, right. Will it go faster? So we're having to move it all onto a different server on the Josh's new kind of super duper fast server. 
and the kind of legacy is there's a little bits and pieces there not working. We haven't got it actually over on the server yet. It's, it's at the moment getting transferred over, you know, like uploading over. So if you bear with us, just for a while, like you say, last week's show, so I got a few emails saying, you know, the feed's not working, the feed wasn't working on certain kind of podcast catchers there, so that's the reason. Yeah, she's put on a bit of weight, and we haven't kind of put her on a, a bigger server. Yeah, how terrible is that? So, moving on, though, what is Sofa Nords? What's something wonderful going to happen to Sofa Nords? Well, beginning of the new year, we're kind of setting it up now to kind of, you know, try and get it all fitted together, and there's lots of people working behind the scenes to get it sorted out. Sofa Nords is going to become a premium members club, like a members-only club, and you will sign up for this service, and the idea is you will just get, like, hopefully, you know, well, it's my... It's, can try my damnedest to get it all sorted out. Just give you as much content as I can possibly, you know. And I kind of pride myself on being able to get stories and do, you know, like these live events and everything like that. Once you sign up for these this membership club, all that will be available. You know, and I'll go into details, you know, over and above board each and every week until we launch. But the initial, you know, the initial sign up there, and the price will, I'll tell you the price first, the price will be £6 a month. And that works out around about $10 a month. And like I say, it's not for everyone. Do you know what I mean? And I don't want kind of everyone saying, no, it would just bring it crashing to the, you know, on our knees. But we just have to have in place, you know, these kind of, this system or this kind of way of doing things just to make sure we can get each week, we can get that show out. The donations, you know, a few months ago, working you know, half a year ago, I put out a plea for it to help. And that has been so great. And, you know, it's just, like, say I've been doing this six years now, something like that. I just don't want to go back to that place where it was so close to, you know, crashing and burning. And this is a way where we can kind of, you know, at least I can give something back. You know, there's a lot of people kind of signed up for the donations there. And in some way, you know what I mean, you're kind of getting it for, for, I'm giving it for free and you're paying for nothing. So there's one way I'm kind of like to say it, right, I made a decision, we're going to have like a private members club and it'll get, there'll be more stories, you know, we'll get, give stories away in audio, there'll be digital stories, there'll be actually audio, full audio books there, we'll have giveaways each month, I don't know if you've seen on, like I say on Facebook, there's all these images of, of things I've got over the years, you know, I've got Hugo little pins from the kind of when you become a member, like a nominee for the Hugo Awards, you get little pins, you get different things. I've got signed copies of Michael Moorcock book. I've just gotten, and this is what will be the first, just through the door the other day, uh, my good friend Gary Mayne went down to London to see Joe Haldeman. And I've got, because if everyone knows, anyone knows my favourite, you know, two favourite books, Forever War, Joe Haldeman, and Flowers for Algernon, Daniel Keyes. Well, Gary went down and, like I say, Joe Haldeman's in the UK at the moment and got the Forever Wars, and it's got my favourite cover on there as well. He's got it signed for us, you know what I mean? So I'm going to give her that away. Each, each month we're going to have, like, a giveaway. And, like I say, this one will be the first one up. And, I'll, like I say, I'll go into more detail what's on offer and everything like that. But as soon as you sign up, basically you'll get everything that Starship Sofa's done. Every, you know, stories, volumes one, two, and three of Starship Sofa's. You'll get Tales to Terrify. Every kind of event and workshop, you know, the writer's workshops, the Amy's lectures, all the, everything I've done there. Straight away you'll get all that content. 
And then each month, we're going to be like, say, each week, we're going to have the kind of content coming in, dripping in there, so you'll get more. Then we're going to do, you know, like different events. We're going to have basically like the kind of an audience with events. You know, I did the the Larry Niven one, I think it was about four, four months ago, things like that. So already signed up is, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson's going to be a guest on there. And these are all going to be, as soon as you kind of pay for this membership, you get everything, it'll be in there. And like I say, I'm going to, you know, mention it, you know, like I'll, I'll dig a little bit deeper into what, you know, the certain aspects of it. So we're getting all the kind of sites set up there now, and that will be the members club, Sofa North, like be like a private members club, Look out for future, you know, let's say future episodes. I'm going to be talking a little bit more, go a little bit more in depth about the kind of the giveaways, about the content, what we're going to be giving away, the audio books that we've got. I know Amy's, we've got two, maybe three audio books already. Amy's recorded, you know, so they'll be in there and they'll, there'll be kind of, if we want to, there'll be committees sorted out, you know, run committees. You can actually choose if you want to interview writers, you know, we'll try and get that sorted out. So there's lots going on. I'm not going to kind of tie up everything today and and tell everything. I'll just feed it in over the weeks and months coming. So that is what Sofa Note is going to be, something wonderful to help support Starship Sofa. So we'll get back on track then with the normal show today. And first up is... It's a cheap skate by our very own Adam. Adam, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. This is Adam bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. A pretty spooky one this time for my annual Halloween edition of Cheap Skates. Let's just jump in. This Halloween, I'm going along the opposite tack from the original monster tale. Frankenstein, which I reviewed last year. Interference by Eric Luke is best told via the modern phenomenon of digital audio and the website podiobooks.com that grew from the advent of podcasting. Just as Mary Shelley's tale couldn't have been told in its form before the birth of modern science, so Luke's story would have made no sense prior to the democratization of broadcasting made possible by the internet and affordable and portable digital audio players. Let me back up a bit to let you know that Interference was originally released as a free serialized audiobook on podiobooks.com. I've mentioned it here on Cheapskates before, and a few of you even mentioned that you discovered the site as a result of Cheapskates. I mention this at the top of the segment rather than the end, as I usually do, because in the case of interference, the method of distribution is as much a part of the story as is the story itself. You don't necessarily realize this in part one, as we begin by following a young boy named Jimmy, who had a scarring experience from the original Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast. This is hardly bothersome, as Luke's description is so vivid that I found myself drawn in, despite the slow starting pace. Also, it helped that the opening music of each section is the same as the short promo that originally drew me to interference. I could swear it was scientifically designed to raise blood pressure. Here, I'll play it for you. Something wants in 
to your head. Through this audiobook. Interference by Eric Luke. An experiment in meta horror. Available at quillhammer.com. Just click play. After hearing that teaser, I'm sure you're either thinking, I must hear this now. Or you're tearing the headphones from your ears before you go huddle under a sturdy desk in the fetal position. If you're still listening, you might want to pick out that desk now anyway. Because starting in the second part, interference starts to feel uncomfortably familiar and personal. As we zoom to present day and meet the first of three main characters who have all gotten into amateur audiobooks. All downloaded from a site clearly meant to be patio books, or a close enough analog as to make no difference. The same site, I remind you, you've downloaded Interference from. Adding another layer of complexity, each character has been drawn to a particular audiobook because the character in that story shares their name or the name of one close to them, as well as a plot or situation that uncannily parallels their own. Usually, at the exact same moment, they are doing the same thing the narrator is describing. Ethan Harding is listening to a fictional Ethan, also getting over a breakup. Vivian is listening to a children's story that reminds her of her daughter, gone to stay with her divorced husband. And Hank finds parallels to his personal struggles with a sword and sorcery version of Hank. Without giving away too much, the creepy idea of an audiobook narrating your own life gets turned up several whole notches when the tales turn darker and begin addressing the listeners directly in horrible, impossible ways. That you, as a listener, are involved in the same experience as the characters as you listen to an audiobook puts this creepy pall of anticipation over the entire tale. It never goes quite to that level, but the mere suggestion of it had me half expecting the narrator to go, and what about you, Adam, at any given moment? Luke also engages in some fun audio trickery, especially early on. Sometimes these are possibly too clever, a little too on the nose but they're not overdone across the breadth of the novel. This clip from part two might give you a sense of what I mean. These audiobooks were self-recorded by the authors, downloaded by subscription to reside on his smartphone, carried with him through the day. Most were unprofessional, but there was a fascination, especially for an unemployed sound engineer like Ethan, in listening to the hiss of the low-rent recording equipment, the resonance of the cheap microphones, the pre-programmed quality of the homemade MIDI music themes. You could hear trucks driving by outside wherever it was being recorded, someone closing a door in another room of the author's house. For some reason, he always imagined the authors in basements. Some were roughly written, too, but there was always an energy, a focus, that he found compelling, sometimes touching. It took an amazing amount of time and effort to write a novel, especially with all the crap life constantly threw at you. There were hundreds available on the website, 
Many of the standard genres of sword and sorcery, zombie apocalypse, vampire teen romance, or Cthulhu dimensional invasion. But some had that idiosyncratic twist verging on obsession that made them more personal than the works of many more polished, processed authors. The thing that had caught his eye about Breakthrough by Anonymous, aside from the main character's name, was the setting. Ethan Harding, the audiobook character, lived in a loft in downtown Los Angeles. And according to the audio currently playing in his ears, he too was standing in his kitchen, drinking a cup of coffee. The beginning of this first chapter had revealed the author's voice as quiet, straightforward, sometimes intense, but only as needed for the narrative. The quality of the recording was semi-professional, with a minimum of room hiss, though sometimes a strange swell of interference would drown out the narration for a moment. There's much more I might like to explore with you in interference, but I don't want to spoil your enjoyment by over-reviewing. I'll just finish out by saying this. Interference is not so much about the fear that arises from physical violence, although there is much bloodshed here. Rather, it has a deeper and more everyday horror that underlies it, of isolation, of fear we've not reached our potential, of regret. And I also appreciate that Eric Luke does not leave it with the horror, but also gives us the hope that each of us matter in some way, because we matter to someone else in intricate webs of connections. Go give Interference a listen this Halloween. It has my recommendation, along with a recommendation that you have someone you care for nearby when you're done, to hold on to. Well, that's all for this Halloween edition of Cheapskates. Theme music is Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton, under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License, this month with audio effects under the same license by yours truly. You can find more Jonathan Colton at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. Happy Halloween. There you go. Adam, thank you so much. And it just works tirelessly. And like I say, if you remember last week as well, I said I'd leave all the notes on as well. Adam's done a, an amazing show notes as well. So do pop over there and have a look for Adam's show notes. Everything's on there, all links and everything like that. So we'll get into The Visited, the first bit of main fiction by Anir Lear. Anir Lear lives in Madison, Wisconsin, where she sells real estate under a different name, writes cooks, plays board games, spoils a cat, and runs the Strange Horizon podcast and plots to take over the world. Her work has appeared in places such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, Apex, and Daily Science Fiction. You can find her online at anirlear.com. This story is narrated by one of my favourite narrators there, Veronica Gugger. Veronica is a white artist and author who has appeared in a variety of audio projects and podcasts covering such genres as science fiction, erotica, fantasy, horror, romance and steampunk. She is the co-author of the Secret World Chronicles podcast novel series as well as the narrator and voice for a plethora of heroes and villains therein. She has voiced spoiled supervillains, tempting demons, fierce pirates, anxious Technomancers, smart mouth shapeshifters, 
geek goddesses, white foxes, virus-laden robots, and a young woman facing an odd spider infestation. And like I said, just a fantastic. Veronica, what a lovely narration this is. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Visited. Written by Anea Lay. Read by Veronica Jaguar. Manuel Black is dead. Long live Manuel Black. Headline of the New York Times obituary. Are you crazy? You may as well ask me to write a eulogy for God. Me, when my editor assigned me this article. I was in love with Manuel Black from the moment I first heard a fragment, a scar, at Penny Carson's summer pool party my freshman year of high school, and my devotion never wavered. Now that he's gone, everybody will say that, but they're lying. By the end of sophomore year, he disappeared, swallowed by a pit of depression and obscurity. That would have been the last we heard from him if not for the visitation. Those were my private years with Black, the years of fragrant-like stars, and eternity and I, we miss you. This is some of his best work, raw and broken, simple but fierce and genuine. The seeds of what would emerge in the post-visitation years are all there, but they're missing the bleak optimism that suffuses his later work. Black was born during the Hour of the Wolf on October 31, 1987, to Maria Marquez and Robert Black. He was their first child after years of trying, a painful pregnancy, and two days of labor. Robert was so overjoyed when he heard about the birth of his son that he kissed the doctor. At 4.08 a.m., Robert held his son for the first time. He danced around the room, singing so loudly the entire maternity ward heard him— Reports of what he was singing conflict, but everybody agrees that he did. Then, at 4.17 a.m., baby Manuel still in his arms, Robert collapsed, dead. He'd always suffered from congenital heart problems, and the stress of the extended labor on top of a difficult pregnancy was too much for him. So it was that Manuel carried a double legacy from his first hour of life, a scar above his right eyebrow from hitting a table edge when Robert dropped him, and the conviction that by coming into the world, he'd slain his father. The Visited, Tanya Lymph The next time you're wasting time at work, fire up one of the videos of Black from the Scarified Tour. He was just twenty, a college dropout who'd accidentally become famous when his video for A Fragment, A Scar went viral. He's visibly uncomfortable on stage, his signature curls falling into his face, hiding him from the audience. It's such a cliché of the stage-frightened musical genius, yet on Black it communicates a vulnerability that only grew with his confidence. Scarified Black was lost, overwhelmed, destined to seize our hearts and fade. When you're done with that, plug in manual Black, the ingress lounge, and loneliness of forever, and start watching videos. They're from his lost years, the pre-visitation black. It's still him, but now he's angry. He hasn't found his Morrisonian black leather pants yet, but he's not afraid of the audience anymore. Curls fly around his face as he stares them down, challenging them to answer the questions he raises with his lyrics to justify the world in the face of his seething despair and melancholy. 
critics of the time wrote the music off as angst-ridden wankery. Audiences found it unpalatably depressing and turned instead to catchy dance pop. Listen to it now and you'll realize his melancholy was a foreshadowing of the post-visitation malaise waiting for all of us, that his anger was founded in an optimistic belief that things could be different if we just bother to acknowledge they ought to be. I took a break from college after my sophomore year. At the time, I thought I was dropping out forever. This was just a few months after the first visitation, and I had decided that I needed to do something different. I wasn't the only one. People were dropping out, changing jobs, and giving up at alarming rates. My parents were fairly understanding, even when I told them that my plan was to tramp across the country following a rock star. Lots of parents were understanding of lots of things in the months following the visitation. The rest were too busy doing crazy things of their own. What's it like to meet somebody you've loved from a distance for years? Somebody you'd loved through obscurity only to have them break into popularity in the wake of the biggest communal trauma in the history of man? It's nerves and sweating and making an ass of yourself in shoes you can't walk in. It's deciding to chuck out the shoes and stalk him backstage. Then getting tongue-tied when he looks at you until you blurt out, I know exactly what you mean in Eternity and I. It's proudly tweeting, Manuel Black stole my panties, before remembering that your mother joined Twitter three months ago. Her post-visitation act of crazy. We may never understand exactly what the visitation was. Reports conflict, and there are as many reports as people who were alive at the time. What we do know is that at 10 a.m., Greenwich Mean Time, on October 31st, 2013, everybody on the planet had a vision. Some claim to have seen a man, others a woman. Most reports claim the figure they saw was unnaturally beautiful. They also claimed to have sensed an intense longing. This report attempts to outline, categorize, and analyze the common themes across the corpus of available reports. The Visitation Commission Analysis I saw them both. They were deaf, two-faced, and beautiful. They wanted me. Oh, God, they wanted me, and I couldn't bear it. I ran. I don't even know how, but I ran, and they let me go. I wish they hadn't. The Unpublished Journals of Manuel Black It was 3 a.m. in L.A. where Black was crashing in a flop house when the visitation happened. He immediately bent over his journals. By noon, he'd barged into a friend's home and commandeered his home studio. The faces the mark was on the internet before the East Coast was heading home from work. It didn't just go viral. Nearly every site hosting it went down under the traffic. In those few hours, Manuel Black had processed the trauma of being seized by something terribly, unfathomably beautiful and being discarded. Our longing, our sense of disorientation, lost our confusion around all of it. He had it there in a four-minute track. The technical elements of the song are massively complex. Harmonies playing off each other and building, carrying the listener from whoever they were through the revelation and into what we were going to be after. 
Listening to that song made it feel like the world made sense, like we knew how to go forward from there, just as long as we were listening to it. So we listened, on repeat, and we nearly brought down the internet. We were all touched and disturbed by the visitation, but none more so than Black. He'd found something of himself in the experience, and lost something. Never again would you hear his anger, his disappointed quest to change things. The world simply was, and he was powerless to change it. Instead, he explained it, became its prophet, its guide. The music he released in the weeks and months following the visitation charted our course back to a sense of normalcy, a concept of our place in the universe. We couldn't go back. There is no going back from facing your cosmic irrelevance. And we couldn't have gone forward without him. In those weeks, we were all in love with Manuel Black. Did he love us back? I stayed with the visitation tour from its late May opening night at the Ingress Lounge in L.A. until their Boston stop in mid-October of the following year. I still can't single out individual incidents from that time. I lived it as one long stretch, from the moment I confessed my adoration and he didn't laugh, until a shattering phone call from my dad brought me home. There are no pieces there. It doesn't subdivide into anecdotes. That tour simply was, and it was marvelous and intense and ecstatic. I've talked to other people who traveled with Black, not just during the visitation tour, but before as well. We all had the same experience. Spending time with Manuel Black was living inside the visitation, dwelling in 30 seconds that stretch on for eternity, skimming across months that pass in a moment. If we'd died on tour with him, the moment we joined would have been the last of our lives, one long succulent final moment. We all hate the people who were with him in New Orleans a little bit. You're an international icon. Your concerts sell out and overflow. People adore you. Is it enough? Enough what? Enough for you. Do you have everything you want? No. What's left? You should never get everything you want. Not until your very last moment. Then, right as you're leaving, then it's okay. But if you have it before then, why would you ever go on? You're just going to lose it. What is it that you still want? Something I ran from. Interview with Beth Kitman, Interior Examiner. From Boston, the visitation tour veered south, landing in New Orleans. Black insisted on playing venues small enough to feel intimate, which meant that there were never enough tickets for his performances. That was why he started the live streams of his concerts, and the New Orleans gig was the biggest stream of the tour.
We all waited while the opening bands fell behind schedule, delaying Black's entrance more and more as the evening wore on. By the time the lights went up on Black at midnight, nearly a third of the adult populations of the U.S. was watching the stream. In the two days since his death, the video of the concert has been viewed over 100 million times. Black's New Orleans gig is the Star Wars of our generation. Everybody saw it. Some watched it on repeat, letting it imprint itself on their bones. Where were you when the stream cut out? The second visitation came at 8 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, October 31st, 2015, two hours shy of the two-year anniversary of the first visitation. There's been a lots of analysis to figure out why the people who saw it the second time did what they had in common. Scientists and analysts and government cranks have spent millions combing through the data, and their explanation isn't any better than the one we all knew instinctively right when it happened. It was after Manuel Black. I was watching the stream on my cell phone while sitting in an uncomfortable chair in a soul-crushing hospital room, waiting for my mother to die of pancreatic cancer and an unwillingness to do anything about it. It was so different to see the show, but not be there, to hear the music over a small tinny speaker instead of feeling it in my sternum and the bottoms of my feet. I was crying before the stream cut out, lonely and alone, desperate to let Manuel Black carry me through this transition and into anything else. The photos from when the authorities first arrived on the scene weren't released for two years, so... The staged photos of the event have become our canon. We know that Manuel Black stood on the stage, shirtless in his leather pants, his curls blowing in an ethereal breeze, while his hands were turned up in supplication and he stared down the visitation with mournful, hungry eyes. We know he was bathed in hard shadows and that his scar stood out more than it ever had before, that a black pendant glowed on his bare chest. We know... He was gorgeous and impervious and innocent. The sole survivor was a Hispanic male of approximately 30 years, 5 foot 10 inches, black medium length hair. We found the subject prone on the stage in a state of extreme distress. He was naked except for a black pendant on a silver chain worn around his neck. Subject clutched the pendant and muttered unintelligibly. When officers attempted to engage subject, he withdrew. You don't understand, he screamed. I love them. I should have gone the first time. Then he collapsed. At that point, paramedics on the scene took charge of the subject. At no point did he indicate awareness of the bodies in the room. Police report from investigation of the New Orleans gig. We waited for Black to release a new track, to carry us through this new iteration of the crisis. But nothing came. Nobody heard from him for two months. The faces, the mark, surged back to popularity, but it wasn't the same. The second visitation didn't hurt us the way the first had. Or it hurt us differently. I didn't see anything. Had I been rejected? I couldn't be sure, and the doubt niggled at me. 
Did the people who had seen something feel like they'd failed somehow, too? I never asked anybody. None of us ever asked. We muddled our way through our post-visitation lives without Black's guidance. That was as it should be. Black never toured again and only made one more public appearance, but he released tracks and photos and videos. He kept interpreting the world for us, kept telling us how to cope, kept paving our way through each day. My favorite track from this period is A Sacred Night. It's a ballad, the instrumentation much simpler than in his more popular work, and a sublime interpretation of Lancelot as a hero torn between his devotion to a world shaped by chivalry and his love, not just for Guinevere, but Arthur as well. The royal couple are the center around which Lancelot's world rotates, so his devotion to one feeds his dedication to the other. He's reflecting on that while debating whether he should go into the bedchamber and declare his affection or continue to, honorably, stand guard outside. He tries to draw strength and guidance from a token Guinevere gave him the last time he struggled, but it tortures him with silence. The song ends before he makes a decision, leaving us with a bitter ambiguity. We know how the story ends, yet the song is so compelling we genuinely wonder. What does one do, torn between love of a thing and worship of the world it enables? After four years of living alone in his Colorado ranch, Black made his last appearance two weeks ago by showing up in New York and giving an impromptu concert in Central Park. He hadn't filed for permits or hired security. It was a public safety disaster waiting to happen. Given that everybody who attended his last public concert died during it, you'd think people would have stayed away. But they didn't. The Internet is full of videos showing police joining the crowd, hanging out and enjoying the music with everybody else when they should have shut it down. And videos of Black? Maybe this is nostalgia or wishful thinking, but he looks happy. He's almost the twenty-year-old Black again, youthful and stunned to be popular, except for the confidence he learned over time is still there, and the leather pants. He's having fun. The audience is having fun, and for two weeks we thought that maybe we'd turn to Paige, that we'd get to see Black again. Manuel Black was found dead in his home early in the morning of October 31st, 2019. He was slumped over his journal, presumably because he'd been writing in it when he died. His estate released what he wrote. It's time to sit still, time to surrender, time to accept. This is the moment, and I refuse to lose anything. My loves, they're coming again, and I am ready. I stretched out to forever, hoping to find a trickle, a trace, a fragment of you. You tore a rent in the world, a scar, a mar, a wound waiting. Maybe you'll hear me. Return to us, lover. We miss you. 
Excerpted with permission from Eternity and I, We Miss You. Lyrics by Manuel Black. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is in there. Anir, thank you so much for that. And Veronica, what can I say? Thank you so much. So next up is another fact article. End of the month, it's Mr. JJ Campanella, Science News, Jim Squire. Greetings and interstellar tribulations, my lifarious listeners, and welcome to this October 2013 Science News Update. I'm your host for this all-new and improved science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. To start off, I want to give you guys an update on the last story I talked about last month. And that was Voyager finally entering interstellar space. This new info was released by NASA just a day after I submitted my segment to the Starship Sofa for broadcast, so I was not able to include it last month. However, here it is, all bright and shiny, and just a month late. So what is it? Well, remember the tagline from Alien? And you will especially see the relevance of this reference in a moment. The tagline was, In space, no one can hear you scream. And in fact, we generally think of space as being a silent place, especially being told this by our particularly nerdy companions when movie special effects in space are mentioned. Well, NASA scientists have obviously been monitoring Voyager as it has been moving through interstellar plasma, which is far denser than solar plasma. No one knows exactly what's out there in interstellar space, but one thing we'd all probably suspect is that space is dark and cold and pretty damn quiet. Well, as far as we know, it's still dark and cold, but apparently interstellar space isn't the soundless expanse that we would have expected. It does have sound, and seriously creepy sound, at least to me. The plasma wave instrument on Voyager captured these sounds of dense plasma or ionized gas vibrating in interstellar space. There were two times that the instrument heard these vibrations, November 2012 and then a longer one on May 2013. Here's the recording at regular speed of each of those. Now, here's the recording slowed down about 30 times. I can tell you that it freaks me out and reminds me of two different sounds from SF. The first and more obvious is the sound used in the Aliens soundtrack by Ridley Scott for everyone's favorite acid-blooded aliens. Actually, I think we also heard it in the recent Prometheus soundtrack as well. Scott is nothing if not consistent. And the other sound is the screech of the shadow spaceships from Babylon 5. Either way, no one predicted ever hearing the like in interstellar space. This is just another piece of evidence that no matter what we think we know, In fact, we know far, far less about this universe that we live in than we think we do. The next story was suggested to me by longtime listener 
Mark Zanfardino. It appears that we can now prevent certain types of cancer with the use of very specific vaccines. Uh, these have worked successfully in mice, and we are moving on to testing it out on humans. The short article that Mark sent me is entitled, Cancer Vaccine Begins Phase 1 Clinical Trials, and appears on the Harvard News website. It basically reports on a team from Harvard University and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute that have engineered a vaccine that they say will help to fight cancer. This work is being led by Dr. David J. Mooney at the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, along with Dr. Glenn Dranoff, who's co-leader of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Cancer Vaccine Center and a professor at Harvard Medical School. We're not talking here about vaccines like the ones that you get against tetanus or polio. Those induce the immune system to rev up against an artificial infection and remember that intruder until the real thing comes along. Then they bear down on that infecting virus or bacteria with a vengeance because they've been pre-programmed against it. Early anti-cancer vaccinations were done in mice in a long, impractical process. They took blood stem cells from mice and treated them with the proper antigens of a specific cancer to become sensitized to the cancer cell's abnormal outer protein sugar markers. These reprogrammed white blood cells were then reintroduced into the mice and presumably went to work killing cancer cells. This seems to work very well in tests with mouse melanomas. According to a study from 2009 in the Journal of Science Translational Medicine, when this process was first reported, 50% of mice treated with two doses of the vaccine mice that would otherwise have died from melanoma within just uh, three weeks, showed complete tumor regression. Well, the Harvard team, using advanced engineering, has come up with a better way to induce vaccination than moving stem cells around. The new approach uses a small disc-like sponge about the size of a fingernail that's made from FDA-approved polymers. The sponge is implanted under the skin and designed to recruit and reprogram a patient's own immune cells on-site, instructing them to travel through the body, home in on the cancer cells, and then kill them. The cool thing about this technology, if it proves successful in the first human trials, is that even though it was originally designed for skin cancer, as long as the cancer type has been thoroughly characterized, it should be able to work with any type of cancer. Of course, the big assumption here is that the immune system in question can be revved up at all. Obviously, the entire process would be difficult in anyone who has any type of immune disorder or is immune compromised. For example, someone infected with HIV who has full-blown AIDS would not benefit because their immune system is simply not functioning correctly. Tumors associated with AIDS would probably be difficult to treat using this technology. Next story. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I don't often talk about films per se on this segment, although I obviously reference them all the time. But this next story is actually about two new movies that will be premiering soon. And they are both about the history of genetics. The first film goes way back in history to the beginnings of modern genetics in the 20th century. It's about one of the fathers of modern genetics, Dr. Thomas Hunt Morgan. In 1904, developmental biologist Morgan was appointed professor of experimental zoology at Columbia University in New York City, where he began to explore heredity as the key to development. A few years later, he turned to the fruit fly to search for mutations. These spontaneous heritable changes had already been observed in plants by Gregor Mendel and others, and Morgan was the first to look for them in an animal system. He was set up in a dedicated lab in Columbia's Shermerhorn Hall in room 613, and there hundreds of fly-filled milk bottles cluttered a cramped space that became known as the Fly Room, where Morgan and his students made seminal discoveries about genes and chromosomes that paved the way for modern genetics and transformed biology into a serious experimental science. The first couple of years of the fly room were frustrating. Despite subjecting roughly 60 generations of fly to extreme temperatures and exposing them to salts and sugars and acids, alkalis and x-rays and radium, Morgan and his colleagues failed to detect any visibly mutated flies. And then in April 1910, he finally spotted one a fly with white eyes rather than the usual red. With a series of crossbreeding experiments, Morgan determined that the white eye mutation was recessive and linked to sex. More observations revealed that the allele for eye color lies on the X chromosome, at least in fruit flies. And that was the first time that a trait had been linked to a specific chromosome. This sounds like a fairly bland setup for a movie, but director Alexis Gambus is making a feature film, not a documentary, 
called The Fly Room, based on Morgan's work. As usual, Hollywood focuses less on the science than on the human relationships, and the story itself concerns young Betsy Morgan, daughter of Thomas Morgan, who is forced to spend the days with her father in his laboratory, The Fly Room. Here is a quote from the Internet Movie Database. Quote, While at first Betsy feels closer to her father than she ever has, she ultimately discovers secrets about him that will transform their relationship forever. Unquote. A film about the more recent history of genetics concerns the fact that it used to be that doctors did not believe that cancer genes existed. Back in the 1960s and early 70s, oncogenes were thought to be in the imagination of research scientists. Today, women with a family history of breast cancer can get a simple genetic test to learn if they are at high risk of developing the disease. Back then, it obviously wasn't possible. The new film is called Decoding Annie Parker, and it's based on the real life of Ann Parker, a woman who survived both breast and ovarian cancer. Parker, played by Samantha Morton, becomes obsessed with learning why women in her family keep succumbing to breast cancer. Her doctors, with one notable exception, tell her there is no such thing as inherited breast cancer. Her family has just had a spate of bad luck. But Parker can't shake the suspicion that there is something inside causing the problem. Intertwined with Parker's often funny narrative is the story of another woman, real-life geneticist Dr. Mary Claire King, and her effort to find genes linked to breast cancer. The film captures exactly what a tall order King, played by Helen Hunt, and her team had to fill. King started her work from scratch in the early 1970s, when it would take a decade or more with a 2.5-ton mainframe computer to crunch data on a handful of patients. She and her team had to sort through 100,000 genes and thousands of women to find the one that was common to breast cancer patients. When King's story begins in the film, she has compiled data on about 80 women. She also faces naysayers who argue that cancer can't be hereditary. Again, this is a story by director Stephen Bernstein that deals with people as well as science. The film peeks into the very real challenges that researchers faced. And again, Decoding Annie Parker is not a documentary. It's a feature film that gives science real respect, which is something that I find lacking in many, many other mainstream films. The next hard science story comes out of the lab of Dr. Erica Watson at Cambridge University. Her work was published in last month's volume of the journal Cell. The science of epigenetics is pretty new, and we're only just beginning to see how deep the rabbit hole of this new study goes. It used to be that Lamarckian genetics was laughed at. Back in the 1800s, Lamarck suggested that physical traits that were developed during an animal's life could be passed along to their offspring, a bit like a bodybuilder's child being born with massive biceps. This was thought to be silly at one time, but we're finding out that there is more to Lamarckian genetics than we ever thought possible. Folic acid deficiency can cause severe health problems in offspring, including spina bifida, heart defects, and placental abnormalities. Watson's work reveals that a mutation in a gene necessary for the metabolism of folic acid not only impacts the immediate offspring, 
but can also have detrimental health effects on the next generation, even if the mutation is not present later. The detrimental effects of folic acid deficiency and development are quite well known. As a result, many countries, including Canada and the U.S., have implemented folate fortification programs that require folic acid to be added in cereal products. However, until now, very little was known about how folic acid deficiency caused a diverse range of health problems in offspring. The researchers from the University of Cambridge in Calgary used mice for the study since they metabolize folic acid very similarly to humans and because folic acid deficiency or mutations in the same genes required to break down folic acid in humans result in similar developmental abnormalities and diseases in mice. This enabled the researchers to explore how the molecular mechanism of folic acid deficiency impacted development, thereby causing the health problems. For the study, Watson used mice in which a gene called MTRR was specifically mutated. That gene is key to the normal progression of the folic acid cycle, and when mutated, it results in abnormal folic acid metabolism, causing similar effects to dietary folic acid deficiency. The researchers found that when either the maternal grandmother or the maternal grandfather had this MTRR mutation, their genetically normal grandchildren were at risk of a wide spectrum of developmental abnormalities. These developmental abnormalities were seen in the fourth and fifth generations of mice, and it turned out they were present whether the mutations were there or not. turns out that these changes are passed along not genetically, but epigenetically. Epigenetics is a system which turns genes on and off. It occurs when chemicals such as methyl groups, simple CH3s, bind to the DNA at specific locations to control which genes are expressed and when they are expressed. Interestingly, the folic acid cycle is required to make sure that the cell has enough methyl groups for normal gene expression. Epigenetic inheritance refers to the passing of these epigenetic markers from one generation to the next, despite the epigenome, for the most part, being wiped clean after each generation. Watson states her concern about epigenetics by saying, quote, It surprised us to find that the great-great-grandchildren of a patient who has a folic acid deficiency could have health problems as a result, suggesting that the sins of your maternal grandparents can have an effect on your development and your risk for disease. More importantly, our research shows that disease in general can be inherited through epigenetic means rather than genetic means, which has huge implications for human health. Environmental factors that influence epigenetic patterns, that is, diet, epigenetic disruptors in the environment such as chemicals, etc., may also have long-term multi-generational effects, unquote. The last story of the night involves a myth that I have apparently contributed to over the years in my classrooms. And that myth is that every cell in your body has exactly the same DNA in it. According to a new study by Tufts University's Dr. Peter Geck in the International Journal of Cancer this month, there is evidence that we are not quite as cohesive as one would have guessed. Geck found that there are a huge number of normal, healthy females who carry male cells in their breast tissue. More than half of the samples he tested contained male cells. This number is even more remarkable when you consider the fact that 
these tissues were taken from a random sampling of women, including an unknown proportion who were never pregnant with sons. Geck's research focused on breast and prostate cancer. Pregnancies, particularly those that occur at a young age, are known to protect against developing breast cancer. Geck wondered whether invading fetal cells might not play a protective role. His first step was to look for fetal cells in the breasts of women with and without cancer. In this case, he looked for male fetal cells since the Y chromosome presented an attractive marker for easy identification. Geck's study gave the first indication of a role for non-tumor chimerism in cancer. Geck said, quote, Most of the women who get these microchimeric infiltrations look like they are really and significantly protected from breast cancer. A chimera comes from an ancient Greek legend. It's an animal that was made up of uh, several different parts from other different animals, including snakes and lions, etc., Well, a chimera in biology is any person who is made up of several different kinds of cells. So here we're talking about cells that are in a female, a normal female, that come from males. So they're a combination of both, hence a chimera. So Geck's data indicated that male cell integration increased the odds of remaining cancer-free by 375%. Only 21% of the cancer samples that Keck tested carried male cells. But the tumors that did have male cells had way more cancer cells than the healthy female samples. So in contrast to protecting against cancer in greater numbers, the fetal cells may in fact promote tumor growth. So few of them are good, too many of them very bad. According to Geck, Much effort in cancer research is currently devoted to identifying cancer stem cells. One possibility is when too many fetal cells infiltrate the breast, they actually cause cancer. On the other hand, they may have nothing to do with causation at all, and as Geck noted, are simply carried along with cancer progression. At the moment, there are more unknowns than knowns in this nascent field that Geck has basically discovered. But he says, quote, It is not an epiphenomenon that these cells get through into the breast tissue and we happen to find them. I think there is a big future, but we are just at the beginning now. Unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember that even if you can't scream in space, space itself can scream. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. Next up is Main Fiction. This is the second bit of Main Fiction we have. It is by our very own Dennis M. Lane, Aquarians on the White House Lawn. Dennis is a South African-based writer who has seen his work gaining more of an audience over the 2013. His 2012 collection of stories and poems gained two rising nominations and a Dwarf Stars nomination. He has had a short story published in Dark Beauty Magazine's annual steampunk issue and had flash fiction podcast on Tales to Terrify. His first novel, Tataloo, reached, now I've got that wrong as well, I know, but reached dizzling heights of number four in the teen science fiction listings on the Kobo site. And his second novel, The King's Jewel, came out in August. 
As his contribution to this year's All Hallows Read, Dennis has signed an agreement with World Reader Organization to make all of his books freely available to more than half a million readers in the developing world. Where to go, man? Dennis, that's just amazing. Dennis, wow, excellent stuff. Got a little tear there. Lump in the back of my throat there, Dennis. What a star. It is narrated by Adam Von Bueller. Adam is a lifelong science fiction obsessive living in Boston. He's also known for his electronic rock band Anarchy Club, who've appeared in the Guitar Hero and Rock Band games in the Impossible category. Oh, that's amazing. Excellent. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Aquarians on the White House Lawn by Dennis M. Lane. The most difficult thing said Arthur Rafe Holborn, looking mightily pleased with himself, was switching the blank corpse for the real Marilyn Monroe just before she drank the laced booze. You have to remember, this was two months before Burning Sky, so we had to keep everything under the radar. We'd phased in once before, when she was drunk, and got a DNA sample, enough to imprint a blank and grow it in a rewind bubble. So all we had to do was wait for the CIA agent to prepare the overdose and leave. We phased in, grabbed Marilyn, planted the corpse, then surfed the stream down to here. Here was the White House, what was left of it. A rewind bubble had been placed over the smoking ruins, big enough to enclose the whole building and much of the lawn in front of the south portico. It had been a very delicate operation. First of all, creating a bubble large enough. Second, programming it to ensure that it only impinged on 1962 for a millisecond, so that the backdrop would appear frozen in time, although it was, in actuality, the same split second continually repeating. The most difficult thing had been to time it so that the mushroom cloud somewhere in the direction of Forest Glen was in full bloom. Clarence Cordwainer nodded his head at Holborn's boasting, trying his hardest to look impressed. Personally, he thought that grabbing a movie star was a piece of cake in comparison to what his team had achieved with the venue, but he knew Holborn from previous operations and didn't want to set him off. "'And how is Ms. Monroe?' Cordwainer asked. "'Quite shaken up, of course. Just look around.' Holborn gestured at the devastation that surrounded them. "'But we were ready for that. The counseling team will have her up and about, don't worry.' And what about the president? The assessment is that he'll be able to adapt faster than her. He was already primed to see the world go up in flames. A few stiff whiskies and he'll be fine. The bubble is in place and he'll arrive six hours before the party. I'll leave you to it then, Holborn. I need to make sure that everything is running smoothly with the facilities. The main party area was being set up on the lawn so that the south portico... Roof blown off, columns rising like those of an ancient Greek temple, presided over things. A team of workers were putting up the decorations. There were bats on elastic, tacky black bunting, carved jack-o'-lanterns. There was no need for anything too ostentatious, not with an honest-to-goodness mushroom cloud as a backdrop. Cordwainer toured the whole site, checking up on the workers— making sure that the bars and food stands set up on the arc of the drive were all situated properly and that the generator down by the southwest gate had been tested. Once everything was in place, he passed the order that his team should be returned home 
and the hospitality staff brought in to prepare. I still don't understand, said Marilyn Monroe, pulling her silk bathrobe tighter around herself. Are you aliens, like they said, landed at Roswell? Chief Therapist Sunshine Oakenleaf smiled and shook her head. Not at all, Marilyn. I can call you Marilyn, can't I? We are all as human as you are. Then what exactly is going on? Well, as you were told when you arrived, we are from the future, quite a way into the future. Even if that were true, why would you travel back in time to bring me here to this hell? The therapist smiled softly. She could well imagine the impact of seeing nuclear war destroying everything that she knew. It was hard enough for those coming from the future, and they understood in their bones that this had all happened centuries before they'd been born. The first thing was that we had the opportunity. We knew when your death was reported and that you would be alone behind a locked door, so we could pick you up before you drank the poison. But the main reason was that we wanted you here to gain the cooperation of another guest that we are bringing, someone that you will be pleased to meet. Who? President Kennedy. Jack? You're bringing him here? Yes, he was a key figure in the war, and it will be fitting for him to speak to those who are going to be congregating here. Did you bring any of my clothes and personal items? Yes, we did. Then what are you waiting for? I have to get ready. Holborn stood and glanced at his watch. The phase carriage was due right now, and it blinked into existence. The door opened and a figure in a gray suit tumbled out. What the hell is going? The president's protestation tapered off into silence as he stood up and stared at the White House. Ah, what? Holborn stepped forward, the very picture of calm efficiency. Taking the team psychiatrist's words to heart, he handed the stunned man a hip flask. My name is Arthur Rafe Holborn. I'm the leader of the team that brought you here. Brought me where? One second I was in the war room, watching as the missiles came closer. The next I was in that car and on the lawn. Just what in blazes is going on? And why are you dressed like a woman? It's a caftan, Mr. President, not a dress. I really do feel that you should take a drink. Then, if you sit down, I'll explain. Moving like a somnambulist, JFK did as he was told. He sat, taking periodic swigs of the whiskey with shaking hands, and listened to Holborn's explanation. Once the technical details had been explained, the president stood up and began pacing up and down. So, your time travelers... If that's so, then take me back to four days ago. Give me one more chance to stop this. Cordwainer, who had been loitering in the background, stepped forward. He wanted to move into the personalities division, so tried to get as much face time with ancestors as possible. I'm afraid that isn't possible, sir. Time is fixed. We can't change it. You're here, aren't you? Isn't that changing things? No, sir, not really. This bubble is a split second of time. Nothing that happens within the bubble affects the outside. The war happened, so, even if we took you back, nothing can change that. What about all the White House staff? 
asked JFK, looking around at the ruins. There should still have been quite a number. Cordwainer shook his head gravely. All dead, I'm afraid. When we dropped the bubble, there were plenty of staff running around in flames. We had to let them die, then we stored them. We will place the bodies back where they should be when we leave. But couldn't you have saved them? asked the president, who hadn't been able to save countless millions of citizens. You have to remember, Mr. President, that they have always been dead. This bubble is the tiniest split second of time. Once it is gone, then history will continue as it always has. Then why spring me from the war room? Are you just punishing me? Letting me see the results of my failure? Not at all, Mr. President, said Holborn. Take a look around. Don't you see the decorations? What the hell are they for? In a few hours we will be receiving a group of revelers, here to celebrate Halloween, and you are the guest of honor, one of them. You have got to be kidding me. Are you all crazy? Why would I agree to participate in this ghoulish ritual? Because of our other guest of honor. Holborn nodded to one of his team, who signaled to a figure standing behind an apple-bobbing stand. The president's jaw dropped. Marilyn! And she ran to him, to be swept up in his arms. Marilyn, I thought you died two months ago. No, my darling. Apparently the CIA tried to poison me, but these people planted a fake body. Poison? They told me it was suicide. The bastards! I couldn't just kill myself and not tell you. How could you believe such a thing? I'm sorry, my darling. I got into the habit of believing everything in my briefings. Is that what happened here? Marilyn pointed at the mushroom cloud. We talked about nuclear weapons. How I said things could run out of control. It wasn't pinko propaganda. I was right. Holborn sidled up to the couple. I would like to leave the two of you to catch up for a few hours. Maybe go to Ms. Monroe's tent. But I need an answer, Mr. President. Are you willing to be the guest of honor? It was clear that JFK was not happy with partying while the world burned, but the warm form of Marilyn Monroe was pressed against him. Her sweet breath was in his face. All right. If it'll get you off my back, how long do we have? Cordwainer stepped forward. I'll come and get you in about five hours, so that you can prepare. Thank you, came the reply over the president's retreating back. We'll see you then. Over the next hours, the entertainments were all set up. The DJ put his collection of reproduction discs in order and tested the sound system. He was an aficionado of the period and had wanted to play only authentic music, rock and roll no later than October 1962. But Sally Vermack, the entertainment manager, had insisted that he include music from all of the 60s, Few people would recognize Bobby Vinton or the Isley Brothers, but everyone expected to hear the immortal Janis Joplin and the Fab Four. The DJ, like purists throughout time, didn't like the idea. 
but he wasn't a practicing Aquarian, and he knew how much the founding music meant to those who were. So he'd reluctantly agreed to play the music that, a few years into the future, would inspire a generation. Sally Vermack may have been entertainment manager, but she was also feeling the wonder of being at ground zero of the new age. She knew that, after the burning sky, it had been the youth that had held things together. Those who had almost brought an end to civilization had been hunted down and strung up at the nearest street corner. And so it was the teenagers who took over. The Beatles had been the figureheads of Britain's youth parliament, centered on the attempts to reopen the Liverpool docks. After years of struggle, they had linked up with the West Coast Hippie Federation run by Big Brother and the Holding Company. It had seemed that the world was pulling itself out of the radioactive hole that it had dug for itself, until 1973 and the blowback war. While the youth had been trying to salvage something and rebuild, remnants of the opposing military complexes had been working to arm reactionary groups. Of course, it had blown up in their faces, and the nascent youth civilization had gone down in a second bombardment. It was only after more than a century of savagery that books and records had been found, the philosophical basis for the peaceful world society that grew up from the ashes. Vermach shook her head. There was no time to daydream. So, making the sign of Aquarius, she hurried off to supervise the dancers as they paced out their routines on the grass. Cordwainer had briefed JFK on his role in the proceedings, and both the President and Marilyn were standing by the stage, watching the DJ warming up. Mr. President, asked Cordwainer, I've studied the war, and it always worried me. Did you want war? Why didn't you negotiate with Khrushchev? The President took a deep breath and thought for a few seconds. Then, in a tired voice, he replied, I tried, but the Joint Chiefs were convinced that a full-scale attack and invasion of Cuba was the only answer. The majority of the ex-com didn't agree, so it was a constant stream of arguments. We nearly managed to negotiate an agreement with the Soviets on the 27th, but it fell through. Things just kept on escalating until... This morning there was the shooting down of a second U-2. After that, the response was predetermined. I'm so sorry, sir, but please be reassured that this isn't the end for humanity. There are tough times ahead, but it all does result in a peaceful world in the end. That's no consolation. No, sir, I don't suppose that it can be. A flicker caught Cordwainer's eye. Ah, the first of the guests are here. The party-goers arrived in groups of six, each phase carriage blinking into existence and then disappearing as the passengers got out. The tickets had said 1960s costumes, and the growing crowd milled around like the back lot of a movie studio. There were beetles in brightly colored Sergeant Pepper suits. There were a few fundamentalist hairites naked and supremely relaxed. Most, however, had dressed as ancestor hippies, caftans, tie-dyed shirts, headbands, a projectile vomit of color. 
The first thing that every group of arrivals did was to stand and stare at the searing orange glow of the mushroom cloud burning a hole in the dark, ash-laden sky. The time of the burning sky was more than just a historical note to them. It was the period that had shaped their world. November 1st, 1962, had been day one of a new dark age, the necessary pain before the birth of the age of Aquarius. Mr. President, Mr. President, Vermack waved as she approached, please come over and meet some of the partygoers. Both JFK and Marilyn were used to celebrity, and so they stiffened their backs, took deep, calming breaths, then walked over to the gawping crowd. The general milling about lasted for a while, but eventually Sally Vermack signaled to the DJ and the gentle background music died down to silence. Then she stepped out onto the stage. Brothers and sisters, the crowd whooped and cheered. Welcome to the Halloween party to beat them all. The end of the patriarchy and the birth of a new age. At that, the devout amongst the crowd made the sign of Aquarius. Those of you standing here are a privileged group, able to see and feel what that terrible time was like. But you haven't come here to listen to me. Let me introduce our guests of honor. Please welcome the last President of the United States of America, Mr. John F. Kennedy and his lovely companion, Ms. Marilyn Monroe. The crowd went wild, and the honored couple stepped out onto the stage, waving. Although I am a politician, I only have a few words that I would like to say tonight, began JFK, more cheering and laughing. First of all, as you can see from your surroundings, we messed up. We almost caused the death of our planet. But those who came after us, your ancestors, did not give up. They did not sit down in the ruins of their world and wait quietly for death. No, they got up and fought to rebuild. They worked to create a better future for their children. And they succeeded. As I look out at you tonight, I can see the healthy and happy representatives of the healthy and happy civilization that is to come. And my heart, which is full of sorrow for my world, is full of joy for yours. And so I have just one more thing to say. Happy Halloween! The cheering rose to an even higher level as JFK and Marilyn walked off of the stage holding hands and waving, Marilyn blowing kisses to the cheering crowd. The lights dimmed and, slowly, the noise died down until there was utter silence. Then, almost below the level of hearing, the Hairites began to chant. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. The DJ flipped a switch and the song boomed out of the ranked speakers, the whole crowd joining in at the top of their voices. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. 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 The crowd sang with enthusiasm, tears of religious joy rolling down many of the faces. Once the devotional song had come to a close, 
The DJ segued into the Jefferson Airplane Anthem. The driving guitar riff rang out, and the crowd cheered and began to dance. Then the words flowed across the heads and upraised hands. When the truth is found to be lies, and all the joy within you dies, don't you want somebody to love? As the bodies moved in time with the music, not one of the revelers knew that the young Grace Slick had turned twenty-three years old the day before and was cowering in a garden fallout shelter, waiting for the end of the world. Jack and Marilyn, standing off to one side, were dumbstruck. The dancing was frenzied and uncoordinated, more like something that they would have seen on a documentary about primitive tribes. How could these people, with their strange dress or undress, be representative of an advanced future society? And yet, there they were. Surely that was proof of their technological advancement, at least. Hey, Prez, a hippie came over, his eyes hidden behind weird star-shaped sunglasses. Wanna pull on this? He brandished the biggest reefer that JFK had ever seen. Um, thank you, but no. Jack was surprised that this strange young man would be so open about drug-taking. But then he looked around and saw that a sizable minority of the group were holding reefers, and most of the rest seemed to be waiting to be past one. The party carried on in the same vein for a couple of hours, a large group dancing in their strange Aquarian fashion to the music, their bodies illuminated by a psychedelic liquid light show that turned the White House into a pulsing kaleidoscope of color. Others were bobbing for apples or stuffing themselves with bonfire toffee and skull-shaped candy. A large group of merry pranksters sat on the lawn, passing around bottles of acid-infused Kool-Aid. As the party continued, JFK got drawn into a deep discussion with some politicos in formal midnight blue caftans, so Marilyn wandered off to meet some of the more relaxed types. She ended up sitting on the grass— making daisy chains with a group of the more laid-back hippies, though not so laid-back that they hadn't thought to bring their own bag full of daisies with them. So, Marilyn, asked a fresh-faced boy, what was it like living under the man? What do you mean? Well, you all had to do what the politicians said. Once they were voted in, they were in complete control and used the army and police as enforcers. Well, I wouldn't describe it quite like that. We could protest. But you couldn't stop them, could you? Asked the teenager, pointing at the mushroom cloud. No, I don't suppose we could. What about your politicians? Oh, they like to think that they're in charge. Actually, they are really just the people who argue for and against a motion. Everyone has a voting console, so... Everyone decides. And they called me a pinko, laughed Marilyn, reaching for more daisies. Most of the revelers were content to enjoy what had been set up for them in front of the White House, but one of the more adventurous hippies had gathered a group around himself. Jameson J. Jameson the Ninth, otherwise known as J-9, had read somewhere about Franklin Roosevelt's swimming pool and had tracked down its location to the area behind the Rose Garden. He'd come prepared, with a number of biolites clipped to his belt beneath his flowing tie-dye shirt. 
He'd wandered among the revelers and pulled together a group of eight people who wanted to experience a bit more than just the White House lawn. During a particularly dark portion of the light show, he led his breakaway group, and they clambered over the rubble of the portico, through the diplomatic reception room, and then left along the center hall into the west colonnade. Through the gaps in the wall to their left, they could see the burnt stumps that were all that remained of the rose garden. "'Here it is!' shouted one of the group, and her light disappeared through a door in the right wall. The whole group rushed in and then stopped. The space was deathly quiet, of course, and dark as a tomb. Not really an inviting place to swim. J-9 pulled a handful of biolites from his belt, slapped them into life, then threw them in an arc across the water. They splashed and then slowly sank, giving the whole pool an eerie green glow. With the transformation of the pool, the mood changed and everyone scrambled to rip off their clothes and jump into the water, laughing and screaming as they splashed each other. Eventually, after nine hours, the time that had been designated as night in that strange non-state of the rewind bubble, the party began to wind down. One by one, phase carriages appeared at the side of the lawn, disgorged members of the cleanup crew, the workers helping to load tired, drunk, or high partygoers into the transport before beginning the task of clearing everything up. Cordwainer supervised the start of the work, and then, with a sigh, went looking for the guests of honor. He'd volunteered to deal with them, and Holborn had jumped at the offer. Mr. President, Mr. President, JFK opened his eyes and saw Cordwainer standing over him. Marilyn's weight was across his chest and he gently eased her onto the grass so that he could get up. Yes, Cordwainer? Ah, uh, as you can see, the party's over. We need to take a sample of your DNA so that your replacement can be grown. What do you mean, replacement? The president looked dubious. Well, we grabbed you minutes before the missiles arrived. That was so that we could grow a blank corpse like we did for Ms. Monroe. We can drop the blank into the war room just before it's hit, so that if anyone does manage to dig their way in, they will find your body. And what happens to me? We will take you and Ms. Monroe with us to the 27th century when we leave. No, the president looked grim. No, I can't do that. You must take Marilyn with you, but I have to return. I can't just run, escape to the future, while my family, my friends, my country dies. But, Mr. President, they will all still die. You just don't understand, do you? The captain should go down with his ship. That was why I refused to be evacuated to Site R under Raven Rock Mountain. Cordwainer dropped his head. He understood all too well. He just couldn't see the point of allowing even one person to die if they didn't have to. Jack, don't you dare leave me alone again. Marilyn had woken up and was standing by JFK's side. Marilyn, my love, I'm sorry, but you have to accept it. I have to go back. Marilyn reached up and placed a hand on the side of Jack's face. But I do accept it. Of course you have to go back. I'm coming with you. No. Cordwainer moved away, 
leaving the lovers to argue. JFK was prowling up and down, looking ready to hit something, but Marilyn just stood there, a small, blonde, immovable object on which Jack's irresistible force broke and was washed away. After a few minutes, they hugged, and, his eyes glassy, the president motioned for Cordwainer. We're both going back. That was all he could say. Cordwainer led Jack and Marilyn over to the waiting phase carriage. As they reached it, they stopped, and JFK turned to the devastated visitor from the future and held out his hand. Don't fret, Cordwainer. It's like you said. We have always been dead. The words catching in his throat, Cordwainer nodded. I'll try it not to, Mr. President. It's been an honor, sir. Not at all, son. Because of you, I have been able to see that all is not lost. And, said Marilyn, hugging Cordwainer, I should have died alone in my room, but you saved me from that. Thank you, Clarence. She kissed Cordwainer on the cheek, and he sobbed. The two lovers stepped into the phase carriage, and the door closed. Seconds later, it disappeared. Cordwainer stood for a long time, staring into nothingness, tears pouring down his face. In the war room, the members of the XCOM stood watching the swarm of missiles on the large display screen. Unnoticed, the president flickered, disappearing and reappearing while all eyes were on the screen. Then, out of nowhere, Marilyn Monroe appeared. Marines went for their pistols, but the president held up his hand. Stand down! Miss Monroe is my guest! Not one of the occupants of the war room understood what was going on, but he was the president, and they had jobs to do. As the missiles screamed out of the sky, JFK took Marilyn's hand. I love you. I love you too, Jack. Then, together until the end, they turned to watch the screen. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Dennis's. Dennis, thank you so much, sir. And Adam, what a voice, man, what a voice. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and, you know, keep spreading the love of Starships over. Do listen out over the coming weeks and months with all things so for naught. I'll tell you what, you know, you can get for your money's worth there and how you're helping to keep this good ship going. Do you know what I mean? So hopefully, as well, when we get back next week, we're all kind of firing on all cylinders, you know, and like you say, she's a a hefty lass, Starship's over there now, and we need to kind of, she's been moved over to a a bigger, better playground. Until next week, I'd just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.